Can we turn to the passage read in New Testament scriptures, the Gospel of John, chapter 12 and verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The preceding verse, verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And that judgment, the word judgment here, is probably better translated crisis. Now is the crisis of the world, the critical point in the experience of the world. I think without, without drawing attention to it, the, the fact is just stated that this is the most important point in the experience of mankind. This is the most important event that can ever occur. You can imagine that there are many things that have happened in the experience of this world. Momentous occasions, and I'm sure they deserve to be mentioned and remembered, but none more so than this. And uh, we read that the ruler of this world is to be cast out and that this is the hour for which Christ has come. Not a literal hour, but this is the event, this is the time, this is the occasion for which he appeared for a season on the scene of time. They want us just for a short time to think about what is spoken about here, the uplifting of Christ, the uplifting of Christ, and secondly, the drawing that Christ is responsible for. And we take in, I suppose, the whole context in order to appreciate what the Lord is saying. And remember, it is him who is saying. This isn't a, an opinion of others as they see what Jesus is doing. This is his own uh, light upon what is happening. And as you read through the chapter, you find that the, the hour that he is speaking of that Christ understands and he means others to understand that whatever it was that took place in his life prior to this occasion and there were many things in his life alone that were important his birth for example the incarnation of Jesus Christ the son of God from all eternity taking our nature and being born into the world, carried in the womb of the Virgin Mary and appearing as he did on the scene of time 
that is important. That is inevitably something that the scripture tells us had to take place. But from that point on, you could argue that Jesus is aware of the climax that he is moving towards, that there is this event that is becoming more and more uh, revealed to him. I think for myself, whenever I talk about this, there is this, this, uh, it's not friction, that's not the right word, but there is this uh, understanding that Jesus, the Son of God, was the Son of Man. And that as the Son of Man, he lived by faith in this world. He is God always, but his divinity was not something that he drew upon at will. It was not something that he used to, to, to overcome illness. It wasn't something that he used at will to overcome the, the evils that were in the world. And you know, recently I, I mentioned this and just came to my mind as I was thinking about some people find it so hard to understand in the sufferings of Christ why much is made of his sufferings. Because surely as God he could and did deal with the sufferings in the way God can deal with anything, make them of none effect, and that is not really possible. It's not possible because it would undermine the, the work that he came into the world to do. If his surf, sufferings as the Son of God, the, the one who was in the world to carry the sins of his people and to to suffer the sufferings that the sinner deserves in meeting a holy God as someone identified with sin, then surely the sufferings could not be put to one put to one side in any way, shape or form. They couldn't be belittled, they couldn't be made little of. Otherwise, why do we look at the sufferings of Christ with the eye of faith? And why would we then look at that and not be uh, convinced that here was some momentous event that could only be achieved and carried out by him? But you'll notice that as the Lord progresses towards this occasion, through the word, as God discloses it to him by means of the Spirit, he comes to a greater knowledge of what awaits him. I don't think that's wrong to say. You know, having in his possession the infinite capacity to know all things 
including all things that the scripture said of himself at all times. Even if you think of him as an infant, was it possible for him as the infant baby in the cradle to know everything that he knew as the adult male that was on the brink of the cross? It wouldn't be right for you to think like that. The Bible, in fact, insists upon it that he grew in knowledge and in stature as he went on. And here in this passage, we are reminded of how more the knowledge the scripture discloses of what his sufferings entail are brought to his mind, brought to his attention, and impressed upon his heart. So that even when he uses the scripture to teach his disciples with the understanding that he has, they cannot and do not fully realise what he realises by faith. So that when we read these words, for example, verse uh, 23, Jesus, speaking to the disciples, says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. That truth is a truth that Jesus has come to know, and come to know with a deeper knowledge and a better understanding, far deeper and far better than any other person who comes face to face with these words. And what this means to Christ is is portrayed in the turmoil of soul that he has. Because he says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. It's as if he is, he is there at that moment, coming face to face, with the greater knowledge of what his sufferings must encompass. You know, it's one thing to read Isaiah 53 and to familiarise yourself to the content of Isaiah 53 and to understand that the prophet is speaking of the suffering servant and to understand that that servant is you as Jesus understood himself to be, reading the words of prophecy as he inevitably had to as a Jew, growing up as a Jew, learning the scripture as a Jew, learned the scripture, attending the temple, attending the, the worship of God's people. And I think it's so difficult, but I think, personally, I think it has to be understood that he did not have the same awareness intimately or with the, with the possession of knowledge that he had at this point it was increased far greater than the knowledge that he had when he, when he read that. Uh, you know, I, I know that 
when you think about Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, there's nobody like him. He's quite unique. He's different to any other person. But there are instances where we see knowledge being revealed or the truth that the knowledge contains being highlighted. Take, for example, the walk of Abraham, where he goes with his son to offer a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. His son Isaac accompanies him, and Abraham is charged with offering the sacrifice of his son. And you see the son, as it were, going in obedience in the presence of his father, and he is interpreting what he sees, inevitably asking the question, well, there is the fire, there is the wood, where is the sacrifice? There had to be a moment in that person's experience where the dawning of the truth that was at the heart of the activity would be brought to his attention. But this is just a boy, a man, seeing the event. But this is Christ. And to suggest that Christ had that kind of experience for some is anathema. It's something that seems surprising that that the Lord could have a blind spot in his knowledge, that his, that his knowledge of what God meant for him was hidden from sight. Now, that's not what I'm saying, because if anybody was able to imbibe the Scripture, to absorb the Scripture, to understand the Scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ was. But the more he approached the hour for which he was in the world, the more the depth of the dealings that God would have with him was revealed to his senses, then the more he grasped the horror of the hour to which he was being propelled. Now that's what I'm trying to say. He, let me quote to you the words of Professor Finlayson. Professor Finlayson has wrote a marvellous book, just a series of lectures on the darkness of the hour of Gethsemane. And he says this in, in, in the book, The Shadow of Calvary. He came to realise in ever-deepening consciousness what it was to have a world's sin laid to his charge. Now try and understand that. You would say, intellectually, he grasped the scripture and the scripture said, through all the symbolism and the type of the Old Testament uh, sacrifices and offerings, that it was teaching. The person who came with a sin offering, 
He came with an animal, and that animal was presented before God in the temple, and the offerer would put his hands upon the head of the beast that was to be slain, thereby declaring by that action that he was placing his sins on the head of that beast that was being offered. But that was a type. That was something that was revealing to this offerer. This is what your sins deserve. Your sins deserve the sentence of death. Your sins deserve the curse of God. Your sins deserve you, the sinner, to suffer and die. But in presenting the animal and presenting yourself with the animal and offering it before God with your hands upon its head, you're saying, my sins are transferred now to the animal that is to be slain. Now, without faith, that did not make sense. But with faith, the person who was doing that was looking forward to what? Looking forward to the day, this hour, for which Christ was in the world, where these sins that had been repeatedly confessed and acknowledged by countless sinners, that he was the sin-bearer, he was the offering, he was the one who was at that moment dealing with the sins of the world. Jesus told them, Again and again, this is what is true. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's what he was in the world to do. So as he approaches this crisis, where he encounters the judge, where he encounters the God who is going to condemn sin, in the flesh, namely in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, then it is not strange. It is not something that we think, uh, well, how else would you expect him to be? How else would you expect him to, to behave with the realisation of that? If this meant nothing to Christ, if the cross was trivial, if the cross was just something like a drink of water to Christ, why is it presented to us in the word of God in the way that it is? It does mean something. It meant everything. And it was critical. It is the crisis of this world. The point at which the sin of the world is being dealt with on the cross by Jesus Christ. One of the commentators, Don Carson, writes, at this moment when Christ went to the cross, the world, he said, was thinking it was passing judgment upon Christ. The world was thinking it was passing judgment on Christ. And frequently in the gatherings of the, of the scholars and of the theologians, they were asking the question, what do you think of Christ? Who do you think this person is? In that moment they were judging Christ. And Carson was saying, the reality is 
that it was not them who were judging him, but it was him who was judging them. The cross was passing judgment on this world. The world is a perishing world. If you don't understand that, you don't need the scripture to tell you that. The world is perishing. All you have to do is embrace the teachings of the Green Lobby and they'll tell you the world is being destroyed by man. Well, that may be true and it may not be true. But it's not the potential that man has to destroy the world that you should worry about. But the God of heaven and earth who created the world, who has condemned the world and who has decreed that the world will one day be destroyed. It is under the judgment of God. But the passage tells us, because Christ is lifted up, and he is lifted up, even lifted up before the eyes of men to ridicule. And they point to him and they say, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Do you remember these words when he was hanging on the cross? He saved others. In other words, he miraculously healed the leper. He healed those who were broken in body and mind, who were, who were under the grip of evil spirits. He even opened the graves and called the dead out of the graves. So they laughed at him and pointed to him on the cross. And he said to him, himself he cannot save. The irony of that should not be lost on us because what was he doing on the cross? Why was he on the cross? He was on the cross to save the world, to save others. That's why he was there. And his death is the death of a substitute. His death is the death of a sacrifice, atoning sacrifice. Remember? Christ read the words of Isaiah 53, I'm sure you have. The prophet looked forward to Christ and he said, by his stripes you are healed. Again and again he reminds his disciples, that's why I'm here. And it was so difficult for them to embrace that truth. But again and again the scripture reinforces the teaching that Christ brings to the mind of the disciples, almost challenging them. You know the scripture, you know the word of God, you know the, the, the examples the word of God sets before you. Remember Israel of old, they were plagued by serpents, fiery serpents that met them in the way, and God decreed that they be healed by means of what? by means of a brazen serpent being lifted up before them. So all they had to do, look to it, look at it, and be healed. Here, centuries before this event of Christ being lifted up on the cross, God was telling them, this is how salvation is going to come to the world. And Jesus is saying, I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. The gospel tells you that. You who are sitting at the Lord's table, believe that truly. That he alone is the saviour of sinners. He is the redeemer and the quickener of 
lost souls. And he is being lifted up before you in the sacrament today. Lifted up as a feast for your starving souls, telling you to look unto Jesus as the author and finisher of your faith. Symbolically representing to you his broken body, his blood shed for you. And you see in him all that he says, I, if I am lifted up, directing your hearts and minds to the cross where he perished, where he died, where his soul parted from his body, and yet in the mystery, in the hands of the divine being, God and man, but one person, the author and finisher of your faith, John Owen, the Puritan, says that we, by faith, and he means all Christians, all believers, we, by faith, get a view of what Christ has done, what Christ is doing. A view of Christ lifted up, a view of him bearing our sins, a view of this action that is an action that is the result of of the love that God declares that he has for his people. He loves the world, so loves the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But the second thing there, which also requires attention, is that he will draw all men to me. Many people would want us to, to focus on that word, all. Christ has been lifted up in the cross. He has been lifted up so that all can see him on the cross. Surely that must mean that he, he died for all, which is what universalists believe, that the death of Christ is a death that has implications for all men and all women of every generation. And just because he died, it means that God has decreed salvation for all. But what you find is that the Bible insists on one thing, that those who are of this all, must believe. It requires that we believe that Christ is able to save, that Christ is willing to save, that Christ needs to save. And if you are not in that all who believes that, then you cannot be in the all that he draws to himself. Because the drawing of Christ to all is the all of faith, the all who believe, the all who have trusted, the all who have looked to the cross, the all who have, who have heard the gospel and believed the gospel and trusted the gospel. Go back to verse 25. Following. Whoever, he says, loves his life, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Again and again, the scripture declares that salvation belongs to certain people. And that certain number, it is certain in the sense that it is only for those who believe in him. Only those who look to him. Only those who trust in him. Look at the prophet Isaiah. The same prophet who spoke so so penetratingly about the sufferings of Christ. He says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. All the ends of the earth. Again, there is this question. Does that mean that everybody, whoever lives in the world, whoever lived in the world, whoever will live in the world, that they're going to be saved? Well, no. There's an instruction. There's a command. There's a requirement. Turn to me and be saved. And this is what Christ is reminding. I, if I am lifted up, will draw all men to me. And you ask a believer in Christ, somebody you know who trusts in Christ, somebody you know whose life has been transformed by Christ, somebody who lives out their life in dependence upon Christ, why they are doing what they're doing, why are they behaving the way they're behaving, why are they the the kind of people that they are? And the only answer that they can give is that they, they are under constraint by the drawing power of a living saviour who has exerted influence on their life in bringing them to experience new life in him, but also also encouraging it and sustaining it and enabling it to grow. It can't be explained in any other way. You know, there are many examples we find in the Bible of of people being drawn to Christ. And it's quite a mystery. Think of the centurion. Standing at the foot of the cross. A mere onlooker. Somebody who was there because it was duty that placed him there. Somebody who was wholeheartedly a servant of the empire. Somebody who had probably witnessed countless souls leaving this world and going into the next, unmoved, untouched. And yet, when he saw the Son of Man being lifted up, when he saw the crucifixion of Christ, what did he say? Truly, this was the Son of God. Could you explain that? How could this sin-hardened individual come to that conviction? How could an individual who had been in the heat of battle perhaps more times than we could count, somebody who had witnessed death firsthand and was unmoved by it, and yet as an eyewitness of the death of Christ, as an eyewitness of the Son of Man being lifted up, all of a sudden, this confession came from his mouth. Certainly, this was a righteous man. 
When a person experiences the drawing power of Christ, it always takes you back to the cross. You know, some people will say, uh, I wasn't really aware of my sin. And yet I came to Christ. And I have no problem with that. I know that there are Christians and what drew them was the love of Christ. They were face to face with the altogether lovely one and their heart was won by what they saw. But were they drawn? And the answer is yes, they were. Even though it was love that drew them, it was the love of Christ that drew them. Where did they see the love of Christ? They couldn't but see it on the cross. They couldn't but see it in the way that Christ gave himself for the sinner. The long-suffering Jesus, who again and again dealt with his disciples and you can almost see him shake his head. Shake his head when he speaks to Peter. Shake his head when he sees Thomas. Shake his head when he sees Judas. And he was nevertheless willing to deal with them, to explain to them. And the more he dealt with them, the more they were drawn by him. The more they were exposed to the way he was, what he was, they couldn't, they couldn't go away from him. Peter, what did Peter say? To whom else can we go? Who else can we go to? You have the words of everlasting life. The Lord's people in all the different ways that you can imagine, are drawn to Christ. But when you find out what draws them, it inevitably takes you back to the cross. It inevitably takes you back to the long-suffering Christ, the patient Christ, the Christ who was willing to experience the sufferings that are beyond measure. when we think of the love of the people of God for the Lord, we cannot underestimate the drawing power that lies behind it. And we dare not think of it for what it is. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Is that true of you at the table today? Surely it is. Surely it is. Is that true of you who are not at the table today? Have you ever sensed Christ drawing you? Even through his people? I know that there are people as Christians and they demonstrate a, a, a loving spirit towards those who don't. 
share the same faith in Christ as they do themselves. Have you ever felt drawn towards them? I, I think that one of the, the most sure marks you find of a person who has not committed themselves to Christ, who has not uh, demonstrated public, publicly their interest in Christ, that you find them gravitate towards God's people more and more. They want to listen to them. They want to hear what they have to say. You, you find them, as it were, just creeping into the, the fellowship of one of the Lord's people. How does that happen? Is it the passion that they're drawn to that is most important? No, I don't think it is. Although we have to, we have to remember that it's, it's important but they're drawn to the Christ of that person. That's what I would like to say. And you read into that what you will, and you desire that to be strengthened and committed in your heart and mind, so that you find yourself more and more in the company of those who are able to share with you how Christ drew them and what Christ means to them. Well, may he bless to us these few thoughts. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, as we continue before you, we give thanks for the Christ who is lifted up before us in the gospel, that it speaks to us of a Christ who was lifted up on the cross of Calvary. And for all who saw him and all who understood what his death meant, we give thanks, and for all who, who saw nothing in him, that he remained to them a root out of the dry ground, we pray that you would ensure that there are none amongst us in our company, in our fellowship, that are of that number. Watch over us, we pray, forgive sin in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> going to sing now some verses from Psalm 45, Psalm 45 from the Scottish Psalter, the second version of the psalm, and verses 1 to 3, page 269. My heart indicting is good matter in a song, I speak the things that I have made which to the king belong. My tongue shall be as quick, as honour to indict, as it is the pen of any scribe that useth fast to write. Thou art fairest of all men, grace in thy lips doth flow, and therefore blessings evermore on thee doth God bestow. Thy sword gird on thy thigh, thou that at most of might appear in dreadful majesty and in thy glory bright. These verses... 1, 2, 3 of Psalm 45, the second version. Scottish Psalter, my heart indicting is good matter in a song. My heart indicting. 
the table. I suppose historically that may mean any number of things and you get those who say that it's a legal term, uh, others uh, go down a different route. But essentially what, what we do at this point is we, we establish uh, in as plain a way as possible the fact that the table, the Lord's table, is for the Lord's people. And it is for the benefit of the Lord's people. It is something prepared for the Lord's people. Somebody said it is by invitation only. Invited guests, guests invited by Christ to do this in remembrance of him. And uh, while it is always the case and always has been the case that there are people at the Lord's table who shouldn't be there and there are people not at the Lord's people table who should be there. It's nothing new. But it's important that, that we remind ourselves of the fact that through the preaching of the word, throughout the, the week, throughout the year, the scriptures are what tell us who the Lord's people are and what marks them out in the world, from the world. And that is something that's ongoing. It's a Christian's duty, not just today, to establish for themselves if the re relationship that they believe they have with God is a right relationship. If there is anything about that relationship that is not as it should be, if they are Christians, then they, they go about righting the wrong or ensuring that 
whatever it is that has intruded into the relationship that Christ himself initiated, that they set about putting that right. Which is why when we read the, 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 the account in the, in the New Testament, Paul's account in particular, that the Christian church are invited to, to examine themselves. But then it doesn't say, examine yourself and stay away. It examine yourself and so let them eat. And that implies that the self-examination that they engage in is to bring them back to the place that they went away from, if that is true of them. And it's uh, an ongoing process. It's not something that, uh, that can be left. It's not something that can be ignored. It's not something that can be overlooked. It's important. We establish how our relationship with Christ began and how it goes on and whether it is as it should be, as I said. You know, when you talk about the Lord's table being for the sheep as opposed to the goats, that is true. The Lord is the shepherd and the sheep are his sheep and the table is pasture prepared for them that they may, may partake of. But there's always, uh, uh, not so much in our culture, but the sheep in the, in the Middle East, they were very like goats. They weren't easily discerned. And sometimes you would want to keep sheep back and you would find a goat there and vice versa. But scripturally, spiritually, what we need to examine ourselves in is to look at the gifts and the graces that we believe Christ endows his people with. We look to the word of God and we establish what the word of God is saying. What is a Christian like? You know, the, the Bible is the mirror of God's people. They stand before the mirror and they ask the question, what am I seeing in this mirror? when I stand before it. And they identify characteristics and features that are Christ-like. And they say, well, these are there because he put them there. However, you know, there are, there are characteristics, I suppose, that are human traits, kindness and generosity and um, patience. You can see that in people who are not Christians. That's perfectly possible. But to the extent that you see them as a trait that is Christ created, that Christ has brought into being, it's another matter. And for that reason, you need the light of God's word. When you stand before this mirror, which is the word of God, you need the light of God to help you see what these characteristics are like and whether you have them or not. And 
if you are a Christian and you feel in yourself that you're not. You know, I, I know many Christians, and when it comes to sitting at the Lord's table, it's, it's something they fear doing because they think to themselves, I'm not, I'm not a fit and proper Christian. And I shouldn't be there because I don't see myself a fit and proper Christian. You ask the question, in what sense? Where are you unfitted? Where are you not the way you should be? And if they have an answer for you, then they are able at that moment to acknowledge before God what they see to be wrong and repent of it and go away from it to God, who is a God of mercy. And that's the process. And for those who are not engaged in that process, then I think it'd be wiser for you to stay away because there's something not quite right about the relationship that you possess with Christ. I don't want anyone to stay away from the table who should be at the table. I would want everybody who's at the table to derive the greatest benefit from being there that Christ means to have, to encourage the graces to to deepen your faith and to increase your love for the Saviour. Well, the scripture is what we look to. And the best passage or one of the passages we look to sometimes we read Matthew chapter 5 that describes to us the, the characteristics of the believer. But in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul describes to us those who are not believers and the things that mark them out. He identifies traits and characteristics that are living, ongoing, in power in the person. And those who are in the grip of these vices, those who are dominated by them, those who live in that kind of lifestyle, they are prohibited from believing that they have anything other than a false notion of Christ-likeness. We'll read what Paul has to say. In chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now that's, that's a very distinct mark that speaks to the child of God. This is something they are aware of in their own heart and mind. That uh, there is this constant battle, there is this constant engagement with the things that are not of God and that are in danger of overcoming them, that they be suppressed with God's help. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, 
envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, those whose lifestyle, whose life is a life where all these things are going on unhindered, without qualm, without any sense of embarrassment. Whoever, whether they sit at the table or not, whoever is living that life, supposing they were sat here today, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that there is anybody here today. God forbid. I'm sure that is not the case. But if they were, they are misguided and God says to them, whatever you've done, even if this is one of them, they are not what will take you into the presence of God for all eternity in his grace and in his mercy. Those who belong to no what well, those who belong to Christ, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The Lord's people today look at that list and they say, tick, 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 tick. Give myself 100% for every one of them. Well, if they are, they're misguided. These things are things that they would love and cherish and would, would promote as much as possible to speak of who they are as Christians. And to, to while they might be concerned of these other characteristics and traits that speak of, of unbelief, that they, that they appear from time to time, they always challenge them and they're not at the same time uh, convinced that they are as patient as they should be or that they are as faithful as they should be or that they are as, as loving to Christ as they should be. But that shouldn't hold them back. But they see grace to be what they are not yet. Well, I pray that God would enable us together today as we sit at the table to consider what we're doing and to be encouraged as a result of it. Before we sit at the table or before we partake of the elements at the table, we're going to sing some verses from Psalm 118 in the Scottish Psalter. In dwellings of the righteous, verse 15, in dwellings of the righteous is heard the melody of joy and health, the Lord's right hand does ever valiantly. We'll sing to verse 19, in dwellings of the righteous is heard the melody. In 
Find our warrant for the sacrament in a couple of passages in the New Testament, but uh, we more often than not refer to the words that we find in the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians and chapter 11, where he gives explicit and specific instructions regarding the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I fear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One with hunger, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Amen, and may the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. We read that in the night the Lord Jesus was commemorated in his death, and he did so himself. We read that prior to sharing the communion, as it is now known, with his disciples, he took bread and after giving thanks. And we'll endeavour to follow the example that he has set for us in offering thanks. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we gather in your name. We give thanks that the sacrament is a sacrament by which we remember you in the death of your Son, Jesus, until he comes. He has given to us this solemn reminder of who he is and what he has done. And it is given to his people to encourage these failing faculties and frail faculties where forgetfulness overtakes us so often that our eye is not upon Christ as it should be. And we do not remember what he has done as we ought. But as we take these elements, we pray that you would sanctify them to the use for which they are appointed. The bread which speaks of the body of Christ broken and the wine speaks of the blood of Christ shed. We give thanks that we can see these symbols speaking to us as you are able to speak to us through them. May all the senses of our, of our heart and mind be in unison seeing Christ in the sacrament. 
and in those who share in the sacrament with us because we are with your people at your table and it is Christ in us that is our hope of glory and as he is in us he is in all those who are with us as we partake may that be blessed to us also remember us each one according to need if our hands tremble if our heart is uh, if uh, our heart is uh, tremulous we pray for your own word to speak peace to us watch over us each one in jesus name amen we're going to uh, speak just briefly before we take the word and the sacrament and uh, just a few words from the old testament and the book of proverbs and chapter 3 and verse 5 and verse 6 trust in the lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths trust in the lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding I always find it uh, a task to find a suitable passage from the scripture to preach on a communion Sunday. And I always find it equally vexing finding a suitable text to use at this point in the service. But uh, those of you who know me will know that I have a study in which there are a lot of books, which many of which I inherited. But uh, I find coming to the end of my ministry, these books are now a burden to me. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing with them. But I look at them from time to time. I read from them occasionally. And I came across a small booklet and the booklet is not by theologians. It was a book, booklet of texts or passages from the scripture or even passages from hymns. And it was composed by children in my former congregation in Graver after I had left the congregation. And it was to raise funds for, for the school. And Christians, and those who weren't Christians, were asked to come with passages of the scripture that they were thought special to themselves. So there was one passage for each day, each week of the year, 52 passages. And uh, some were, as I said, Psalms, some were verses from the New Testament, some but verses from hymns that they had as children, 52 in total. And I looked at the wee book and I found my own name there. Even though I had left Graver at that time, they very kindly asked me for a verse. And this is it. This is the verse that I chose. 
And I thought, well, that verse is a very precious verse. And uh, it encourages the child of God to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you examine what it means to trust, to trust the Lord, you're asking, um, you're being asked to do something that is very, very difficult to do. But when I was thinking of it, I think, thought to myself, you understand the importance of it, perhaps more than any, anything, when a trust is broken. When you've shared a confidence with somebody and you ask them to keep that confidence, not to share it with anybody else, and you find that they do, you know that at that moment you feel betrayed, you feel hurt, because your trust has been broken. Now that's a strange way of explaining what trust is, but I think in that feeling, it, it exposes your expectation of what trust is. And when you apply that to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ expected his disciples to trust in him. And one occasion uh, that we're all familiar with, he tells them, I am going to prepare a place for you. Were it not, were it not true, I would have not told you. Do you not believe this? It's as if he is saying, I've told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And for you not to believe that, for, not, for you not to trust that this prepared place for my people is waiting for you, what kind of person do you think I am? Do you not trust me? And we are encouraged to place our trust in the Lord wholeheartedly and in all situations, on every occasion. Lean not to your own understanding. When we think about our understanding of what Christ means, that he loves us and that he wants us to be with him and all the good things that we have taken to heart and we believe that are rightfully ours, whenever darkness clouds any of these things, any of these experiences, we, we question, we feel that Christ is not being faithful. But our understanding is leading us astray at that point. If we find ourselves questioning what Christ has done or is doing in our experience, and every one of us here has had experiences in our life which we would not have chosen, which we would not have embraced, we would have gone anywhere. And yet Christ is saying to us, your understanding of these things is often quite different to what it should be. 
you trust in me because I am your God, I am your Lord, I am your Saviour in all of these things. I remain faithful. When this morning I was reflecting again on these words, I remembered a particular individual and as a Christian who has gone into the ministry and who has finished his course as a minister, as a student I remember sharing with him and he quoted this verse and said how much it meant to him. And I know that person today has had grief in his life where his belief in this world is tested, tried. So easy to say these words, but Christ has a way of saying, remember the truth. Remember what the truth is saying to you. Don't allow what you believe to be true. Don't allow that if it is against what I say is true. Don't allow it to come between us. Well, I'm not going to, I'm going to come back and finish off the last part of this very briefly. But we read together in this passage how the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples the sacrament. And uh, after having given thanks, which he did, he took bread and broke it, and he said, this, my body, is broken for you. Do I go to you? Excuse me. This, my body, is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do this in remembrance of me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean to your own, on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. When we sit together at the Lord's table, it is the means that Christ has ordained by which our faith and all 
spiritual graces are strengthened. And Christ was nothing if he was not wise, and he knows and knew what needed to be done in order for his people to be able to live on in this world as believing people. But the table is a table for a time where we sit with our friends, our brothers and sisters in the Lord just for the occasion. But then we must rise from the table and we must go about our our daily tasks. And what we are to remember by reason of what we are doing is that we are, by profession, sitting at the table today declaring an interest in Christ. But that interest in Christ doesn't belong to the table exclusively. It's You've done it, but you don't go away from here and be something different. You can't be. You're a Christian, and this partaking of the supper belongs to you as a Christian. But, as this verse challenges us to think, wherever you go from this table, you must acknowledge him in all your ways. Wherever you go from here, you go from here as a Christian believer, strengthened in order to go on as a believer. That's important. So that, you know, those who are not with you at the table are looking at you here and saying, oh, there's that person and this person, and they're at the Lord's table. And when they meet you tomorrow, they will ask the question, was that person really at the table? Because your behaviour is not what they would expect of somebody who's at the table. And we're all in the same boat. Our public profession of faith in Jesus Christ is not curtailed to this moment, this occasion, twice a year, for many of you in the congregation. But it is just something that Christ has given to us in order to allow us to live in the world as one of his people and display all the characteristics which we spoke of that mark us out as his children. So that we want, you know, if we misbehave as Christians, and we are Christians, and if we misbehave, One thing that you will discover that your misbehaving will hamstring your your ability to present Christ to others. If not, you're a hypocrite. Because you can live like that, but you're living the life of a hypocrite. The believer who is Christ's, there only are believers who are Christ's, will find that Sometimes when we do wrong, our voice is taken from us. And 
what this version encourages us to be is going out into the world in all our ways acknowledging him. And as we acknowledge him, he promises to direct our paths. And I would hope that one thing that you would do from this moment on, if you haven't already been doing it, seek occasion from God by which you can demonstrate to others that you are his. Seek the occasion. Seek, I mean, that's something I, I'm grieved over, that I am not as sensitive, and you know, as a minister. People, all I have to do is put on my clerical collar and people will say, well, there's a minister. And they'll behave, some of them, towards me in the way that they're expected to behave because I'm a minister. You know, that mean, might mean something different. It might mean that I've seen people turn their backs. I've seen people go away because I'm a minister. I've seen them put a face that is a dark face of somebody who doesn't like who I am and what I am because of, of the clerical collar. But that aside, I would desire to be on the lookout and with the opportunity to be able to share with others what I have enjoyed of Christ's company today and on any occasion that I have enjoyed that. There's a challenge for you. Look to God to direct your path towards individuals or opportunities for you to be able to speak in love to those that do not know your Christ and your Saviour so that you can share with them and that they may learn about him what you have learned and that you're continuing to learn. Maybe you're sitting at the back there and you're saying, well, he's talking gobbledygook. Maybe that's what you're thinking. I don't know. I would hope that at least among some of you, there would be a desire, a longing to one day be sitting where these people are, to be with them, to be one with them, and to be one of God's people. And that's my prayer for you as well. And I hope that you would understand that it should be your prayer that it should be something that you are earnest about, that you are desiring above all else. Now, I can't think of anybody here who's here today. I mean, we live in a day where church attendance is on the decline. And I fervently hope that any person who has yet to make a profession of Christ in their attendance in church, that you are at least inclining your heart towards him. And I would hope that, hope that it would take you beyond that and trust in him. Well, may God help us together to leave this place today and to have a better knowledge of Christ and a greater appreciation of who he is and what he means 
to his people. We're going to rise from the table, singing the words of Psalm 103. O thou my soul, bless God the Lord, and all that in me is, be stirred up his holy name to magnify and bless. We sing to verse 4. Who doth redeem thy life, that thou to death mayst not go down, who thee with loving kindness doth and tender mercies crown. O thou my soul. O thou my soul, bless God. blessing to be upon all that we have handled of the word of life and these symbols that you have given to us that speak to us of the death of a living saviour. It is a marvellous truth that the one who died on the cross, he ever lives to make intercession for us and we pray that you would allow us to be found within the enveloping arms of that great high priest as he pleads our cause on the basis of his own merits. Watch over us in what remains of the day. Be with us in the evening service and sanctify us as we wait upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're concluding Psalm, Psalm 72 and from the Scottish Psalter, the last three verses of the psalm. 
Psalm 72, verse 17, his name forever shall endure. Last like the sun it shall, men shall be blessed in him, and blessed all nations shall him call. Now blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel, for he alone doth wondrous works in glory that excel. And blessed be his glorious name to all eternity. The whole earth let his glory fill. Amen, so let it be. His name forever shall endure, last like the sun itself. His name forever shall endure, last like the sun. Son and the Holy Spirit rest and abide with you all now and always.